You can turn in your Bible to Mark chapter 12. Mark chapter 12, starting in verse 18. How are you guys doing this morning? You good? All right. If I don't get this just right, it feels like there's like a bug on my face. It's like, it's going to distract me. All right, Mark 12, starting in verse 18 through verse 27. Let me, let me read God's word to us. And Sadducees came to him who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife, but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and when he died, left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third likewise. And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. In the resurrection... When they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as wife. Jesus said to them, Is not this the reason you are wrong? Because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. And as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses... In the passage about the bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. That's got to be my favorite ending for for one of these chapters. You are quite wrong. Uh, Let me pray for us. Lord, We thank you for this passage of Scripture and for the hope that it offers to us. I pray that you would, uh, even as Trev just prayed, that you would convict us, that you would uh, give us eyes to see, ears to hear your truth. And Lord, I pray in all of it, your Son, Jesus Christ, would be exalted. He would be lifted up in our hearts, uh, that our hearts would overflow with love and joy and peace and rest in knowing our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that for these brothers and sisters, for your people, for your sheep. Lord, glorify your name. Amen. Well, I want to begin this morning by telling you something. And it's, it's something that, that you subtly lie to yourself about a lot. And it's something the world is constantly telling you to ignore. I want to tell you this morning, if you didn't know, that you are going to die. I know that comes as a surprise to many of you, Uh, but it's true. You you are going to die. You are going to come to a point where your heart stops beating, where your, your lungs stop pumping air, the The synapses in your brain stop firing and your body decays to the point of death such that your life will come to an end. You will die. Today, tomorrow, in 10 years, 20 years, 50 years, we don't know. But we do know that death is real and it eventually comes to everyone. It's all around us. Yet, we often live like that's not the case. Remember, we sort of subtly lie to ourselves about this fact, and the world is constantly telling us to ignore the fact that you are going to die. But death is an an inescapable reality. It's an inescapable reality. And sort of the question I want to ask you this morning is, when you are confronted with that reality... When you have an honest moment in the quiet and you are confronted with the reality of your own mortality, the reality of your own death, where do you turn? Where does your mind go? 
Where does your heart find rest? Do you numb yourself to it? Do you ignore it? Do you just sort of suppress it? Do you find hope? Where, where do you turn when you are faced with your own death? Where do you go to find strength? The, you don't, I just hate greeting card theology, don't you? You know those trite platitudes, those cliche sayings, you know, like death is just a part of life. They, they just, they offer no comfort. And they don't offer any answers. But so often that's, that's what you, that's what's there. That's what you get. So what I want to ask is, is do you just silence that voice that tells you your, your own death is fast approaching? And I know the fast approaching part seems, you know, if you're someone who's younger, you're in your 20s, you're in your 30s, 40s, that fast approaching part seems distant. But for those of you that are a little more seasoned, shall I say, uh, you, you, you feel more and more the fleetingness of life, how fast it really does go. And in the light of eternity, it's a vapor, right? It's a, it's a breath. And when you feel the fast approachingness of death, do you just sort of silence that voice? You know, I, I heard someone say once that a, you could sum up the whole of a pastor's job. If you wanted to know what a pastor's job is all about, this, this guy said, a pastor's job is to prepare his people to die well. So I want to ask you this question. Are you prepared to die? Are you prepared to die? That's a kind of a morbid question. I understand that. But here we are. And if you can't talk about death in church, where can you talk about it? Are you prepared to die? I don't mean like, do you have your life insurance in order? That's not what I mean. What I mean is, are you really prepared to face your own death? To look death in the eyes? To stand toe-to-toe with your own death? Few, few people are. But that's exactly what our passage this morning is, is meant to do. To, to help us face our own death. And how is that? By, by telling us something, or, or should I say, by showing us someone who is stronger, who is weightier, who is more final than death. That's what's so scary about death, isn't it? The finality of it. But this passage shows us something. It actually shows us someone who is stronger, weightier, more final than death. In this passage, we find, as we continue on through Mark's gospel, we find yet another conflict episode. Uh, you, you, I, I trust that you're picking up on this. We're, we're making our way through these conflict episodes with Jesus, between Jesus and the religious elites. And we, we get this other religious sect, the Sadducees, who are uh, like all the, like the Pharisees, like the Herodians, the chief priests, the elders, the scribes. They are trying to embarrass and discredit Jesus. But their tack is a little different. They're going to challenge him on the doctrine of the resurrection and the afterlife. A doctrine that, if you didn't know, the Sadducees had long dismissed as religious speculation, as a pipe dream based on, uh, you know, just theological musings that had no real root in the Scriptures. Uh, I'm going to mention this again, but the Sadducees, by the way, only accepted the Pentateuch. They only accepted the first five books of the Bible. They They did not consider the prophetic writings to be authoritative. So they looked into uh, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, and they said, there's no resurrection there. Any, any thoughts of resurrection? That's just a pipe dream. So the Sadducees believed that when you die, that was it. Right? Body and soul perish, eternal darkness and nothingness. And they knew, of course, that Jesus had foretold both his death and his resurrection. And they thought to themselves, they reasoned to themselves, if we can call Jesus on the resurrection, if we can confront him and show, and show Jesus how ridiculous the resurrection is, or at least show everyone else how ridiculous Jesus' view of the resurrection is, then we can discredit him, we can discredit his teaching, uh, and we can embarrass him, and he will uh, be left as just some other teacher with some radical ideas. But as I said, praise God for the last sentence in this passage, right? You are quite wrong, Jesus says. The word, by the way, wrong there, the Greek word, it's a planeo. 
It's the word uh, that we get planet from. Uh, and it actually means like you're way off course. You're, 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 you are badly mistaken. That's how the NIV translates it, I think. That you are badly mistaken. Jesus is saying, you, you guys are just totally off base on this one. Now, that's a statement that requires some defending, and that's exactly what Jesus is going to give us here in this passage. Uh, Jesus gives the Sadducees three reasons, three proofs, three defenses, if you will, uh, that are, are meant to uh, uproot and overturn their belief, or their lack of belief, I should say, in the resurrection. Uh, so three reasons. So that's what I want to give you. I want to give you three reasons, three defenses, uh, and then I want to kind of talk to you about the final result, the final product of those reasons. So here we go. Three reasons. The, f- the first reason, the first defense is that of a logical nature, a logical defense. Jesus gives them a logical defense. Uh, you know, Jesus was really smart. You know, G- did you know that? Jesus was really smart. I'm going to show it to you. The first reason, um, well, b- before I give you the reason, let, let, me, let me set up the, the sort of the conundrum, the puzzle. Uh, the, the first half of that passage, the the Sadducees give to Jesus sort of this like hypothetical resurrection scenario. And it's a scenario that's based on the Jewish, the Jewish custom of a leveret marriage. Uh, I didn't know what it was called. I just saying smart things that I read in books. It's called a leveret marriage. The custom was uh, if, if, if your brother died without leaving an heir, uh, the, the brother was uh, expected to take the widow and bear children to carry on the brother's name. So taking that principle, the Sadducees ask, uh, hypothetically, what happens if a man's brother dies, leaving his widow without a child and marries her, but then he dies without giving her children, and this happens seven times over, right? The the brother dies, no children. The next brother dies, no children. Seven times over. What happens? In the resurrection, uh, who finally is is married? There's, There's nothing to privilege one marriage over another. There were no children born to any of the marriages. So in the resurrection, well, which of the seven are married to this woman? And they feel like, just at a glance, face value, this seems to be sort of an impenetrable problem for Jesus, right? Because on the one hand, if Jesus sort of upholds the resurrection and comes up with some kind of argument for I, the Sadducees think, well, either on the one hand, he's going to have to embrace that there's, you know, polygamy in the afterlife or something where he gets to marry all of them, or, you know, he's going to be an adulterer with the one and forsaking the other six. So there's going to be like immorality in the afterlife. Or on the other hand, he's going to have to deny the resurrection and that will discredit him. Are you tracking with the problem? You, you, you see the, the, the situation they've set up there? So now I said Jesus is really smart. Consider the infallible logic of Jesus. If, if you've ever taken a course in logic, or if you've ever sat with someone that's really into logic and thought about it yourself a little bit, you'll know that in the case of a, of a deductive argument, if your premises are true, if your premises are all true, then the conclusion necessarily has to be true. But if any of your premises are false, your conclusion is on shaky ground. What Jesus actually is going to attack is not their conclusion, but their premise. An underlying assumption that they've built their argument on. What is that premise? It's this. It is that, this is the the Sadducees' premise, their, their assumption, their presupposition. It is essentially that life in the resurrection is a kind of parallel extension to our life on earth. It's the belief that the afterlife is basically the continuation of your life as it presently is with maybe some slight modifications. But, but Jesus says, uh, no, 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 no. Life in the resurrection is, is an existence on, on like a whole new plane. It's a whole, without sounding too science fiction-y, it's, it's almost like a new dimension of existence. Look at what he says in verse 25. He says, For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Well, that's a loaded statement right there, like angels. Now, what does that mean? What is Jesus saying? He he says they neither marry nor are given in marriage. Why? 
I wonder if any of you that are married are, are just like that. Are you know that's that's a I don't know maybe some of you that are married are like oh thank goodness, <laughs> but maybe there are some of you that are are like you know the marriage is is one of the greatest joys of your life and the thought of not being married to your spouse in glory in in the resurrection is uh, you know a sad thought. But this is what Jesus is saying. He's saying because earth. Because marriage on earth is for the purpose of intimacy and children, in the resurrection there will be no more childbearing. There's no more death. There's no more need for the propagation of, of children. There's, there's no more need to mold. There's no more death. That's what, that's what he means, by the way, when he says they're going to be like angels. He, he doesn't mean that people are going to like get wings or something. And I do hope we can fly in the resurrection, though. It doesn't, it doesn't mean that we're going to you know, look like angels or some way we're going to be, be, be something other than human. It, it means that we are going to exist as the angels are. Specifically, that the angels are not, that, that, there's no child, there's no little baby angels in, in, in the resurrection. They're, they're, they're not procreating. But now, how about this issue of intimacy? That's the, that's the concern, right? If you have a good marriage, you're like, but I don't want to be if I'm not married, somehow I'm going to be less close to my spouse, right? Because we have this special relationship, right? But, but in, the, in the resurrection, the, the fireworks of intimacy that you will experience with not only your spouse, but with every redeemed person in heaven will make even the most powerful moments of intimacy. Even the most powerful. Just think about the most powerful moments of intimacy you have had in this life. What I'm telling you is in the resurrection... Those most powerful, most tangible, most overwhelming moments of intimacy will be like lighting a match and it flickers for a minute and then goes out compared to the fireworks of intimacy that you will feel in the resurrection and know in the resurrection, both with your spouse and with all of God's redeemed people. You will not be, you will not be uh, less close to your spouse in the resurrection. You will be infinitely closer because you will have redeemed, resurrected glorified bodies with a whole new range of capacities that I can't even imagine. You see, the, the intimacy and the closeness that two people experience in marriage is really only a foretaste and a hint of the complete intimacy and fellowship you are ultimately meant to have with God and with his people for all eternity. And, and Jesus is saying that life in the resurrection, look, this is what Jesus is saying to the Pharisees. He's saying life in the resurrection, it bursts all the earthly categories and all the earthly bonds. I mean, whatever you think of in, as life on earth, the resurrection is just going to explode all of those categories. I'm trying to, I, I was trying to think of just like analogies to, to help us grasp this. It, it would be like, It would be like as if life on earth, every good thing you experienced was just sort of the faint whisper of a beautiful song that in the resurrection is being played on full volume and is over. You ever go to a concert and you just feel the bass like, like thumping in you? Okay, what I'm telling you is life on earth, you are the good experiences, every pleasure and every experience that you have on this earth is like you're just straining to hear it, straining to feel it, straining. And think about how overwhelming it is even here on life on, on earth in these bodies. You're stra- it's just like a little whisper, a faint hint, but in the resurrection, it's that boom, you know, that, that it's, it's, it's overwhelming. It's a beautiful song that is being played at full volume. I remember when... Um, when I was in uh, high school, I was a band nerd. I liked music. Uh, band people aren't nerds. That's, that's a misnomer. Band people are cool. Uh, we did a field trip. Um, we went to the Kimmel Center. And part of the field trip was we got to go in and listen to the orchestra practice before we actually sat and listened to it. And when you go in and you hear them rehearsing, you hear uh, a bunch of people, and they're all sort of tuning up their instruments, and they're playing, and they're not playing in unison, and it's, you know, it's just kind of like this mess, and it's, you know what I'm talking about, right? Uh, And every once, you know, you'll hear people out of tune, and it really doesn't sound that great. You're just like, wow, look, there they are, you know, know, all the the, the amazing performers. And, uh, but then, the the curtain opens, when it's finally time for the show, the curtain opens, 
And all these people start playing in unison. And it's just this beautiful symphony. And what I'm saying is life on earth is like the, it's like the dress rehearsal, right? You, you, you'll hear some pleasant things when you, when you go and listen to the guy practicing on his clarinet and the trumpet. Oh, that sounds nice, but it's all jumbled and there's all stuff mixed in. But then one day, one day, that curtain's going to open and it's going to be this beautiful harmonic symphony like you can't believe. I'm straining for words. You, you just can't. How do you put it to words? How do you put it to words what, what it's going to be like in the resurrection? And Jesus is saying, guys, your premise is wrong. That's what he's saying to the Sadducees. Your assumption is wrong. You're assuming that things are going to continue on the way they are here on earth. And it's just going to, it's just going to be a, a totally different. It's going, to, it's going to explode the categories that you have in your mind for what life is like. Look, this is the way Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, verse 35, But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body. Listen. What you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel. A bare kernel, perhaps of wheat or of some other grain. And then jumping down to verse 42, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. What is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. You see what he's saying? It's just, it's going to explode earthly categories. What's sown, perishable, raised imperishable. I asked Lindsay this question. I heard someone uh, thinking about this. It was on a podcast or something. And it's, you know, it's just, who knows? But he, but he said, you know, okay, in earth we have five, sentence, five uh, senses. Uh, sight, hearing, taste, touch. What's the other one? Is that five? Smell, right? Okay, five senses. How many senses are you going to have in the resurrection? What, what, what kinds of capacities will you have for enjoyment, for love, for rest, for beauty, and appreciating and seeing beauty in the resurrection? C.S. Lewis wrote a book called uh, The Great Divorce. You guys know C.S. Lewis? Wrote, he wrote a book called The Great Divorce. And uh, he tells the allegorical story of a man who takes a bus ride to heaven and hell. And when the bus arrives in heaven, he, he looks around at the people on the bus that once they get off the bus and uh, he, find, he sees them and they're transparent. The light is, is so bright, it actually shines through them. They're, they're like phantoms. They're like ghosts. And when they walk on the grass, the blades don't bend. Like the blades of grass don't bend. The, the, the grass actually hurts to walk on. When, when he tries to pick a daisy... It's too strong, it's too hard, it's too weighty for him to actually pick. When he tries to pick up a leaf, there's a little leaf on the ground, he tries to pick up a leaf and he says it's like a sack of coal. He can't pick it up, it's too heavy. What, it's, it's, again, it's an allegory. What is C.S. Lewis, C.S. Lewis trying to say? He's, he's, he's in heaven. And what he's saying is the reality of heaven is so infinitely heavier, so much more real, so much more glorious than this earthly existence, so much so that the, the light of heaven makes us like ghosts, makes us like phantoms, makes us transparent. But, but when the guy in heaven sees the heavenly beings, like when he sees the heavenly beings coming towards him, those glorified and resurrected humans that were once just like he is, they are brilliantly bright. They're called the solid people, not transparent, the solid, they've been made solid. They've been made of the stuff of heaven, right? We, we now bear the image of the man of dust, but one day we'll bear the image of the man of heaven. They're the solid people. They were brilliantly bright and gigantic. They're gigantic, such that when they press their feet down into the ground, the blades bend over and their feet sink deep into the rich soil. They could see, he could see them coming from miles away. The earth shook under their gate. And as they walked, they, they crushed the grass and the scattering dew. They, and he says they were mature. I, I, I really like this part. They were, they were mature, but they were at the same time ageless. He says you could tell that they, they, were, 
they were mature, but you couldn't tell what the age was. Now, listen, this is all speculation and imagination, but the point is, the resurrection, to, to, to think that the resurrection is going to just be like earthly life continued out. No, 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 Jesus says. No, the resurrection, what's sown in per, uh, perishable will be raised imperishable. What's sown in, in, in mortality will be raised in immortality. What's sown in dishonor, dishonor will be raised in glory. See, what Paul is saying and what C.S. Lewis is trying to imagine is that trying to compare resurrection life to earthly life is like trying to compare a tree with a seed. It's like trying to compare a butterfly with a caterpillar. It's like trying to compare a a, a 15-week-old baby in utero with a grown adult. And listen, what I'm think about the chasm there is between a 15-year-old or 15-year-old, a 15-week-old baby in the womb. Okay, what can a 15-week-old baby in the womb do? Like nothing. It's a person. It's a human. It's not anything less than human. And yet think about the difference of capacity between a 15-month-old baby in utero compared to a grown adult. And what I'm telling you is that chasm, the chasm between the, the unborn baby and the grown adult is like nothing compared to the chasm between you and what you will be in the, in, in the resurrection. So the Sadducees challenged the notion of the resurrection on the basis that it's a continuation of life as it is on this earth. On this earth. And Jesus says, he says, listen, if you're going to give me a hypothetical situation, you at least have to talk about the resurrection like for what it really is. You actually have to give me a real description. You have to actually hypothetically talk about the real resurrection. You can't give me some silly situation where, where life just continues on forever as it is on earth. Not some oversimplified straw man version of it. Okay, so Jesus gives a logical reason. Now he also gives a scriptural reason. He gives a scriptural defense, a scriptural proof. Look at verse 26. It says, and as for the dead being raised, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the bush? How God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He is not God of the dead, but of the living. You are quite wrong. Now you have to understand here that Jesus is taking a direct shot at the Sadducees' reputation. Verse 24, Jesus begins his answer by saying, uh, Is this not the reason you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. The Sadducees, by the way, they were, they were a minority in terms of number. There were, few, there were not as many Sadducees as there were Pharisees. But they were extremely close to the temple and to the priests. And so they held kind of a, uh, a majority sway uh, among the aristocratic, wealthy uh, Jews. They were revered as experts in the Torah. They were the go-to authority on the Torah. Uh, and they, because of their close connection to the temple and the chief priests, uh, the chief pri- you know, the, the high priests and the priests, um, they had a, an incredible amount of power. But here Jesus comes to them and he says, uh, y- you actually don't know anything about the scriptures. And you don't know anything about the power of God either. One commentator said, it would be like this. It would be like saying to uh, like an, uh, a high-powered investment Wall Street banker, be like asking them, like, do you even know anything about money? Or it would be like saying to a, a NASCAR driver, like, you know, a champion Daytona 500 NASCAR driver, like, hey, do you even know how to drive a car? Like, that's what Jesus is saying here to the Sadducees. You guys don't know anything about the scriptures. You don't know anything about the power of God. Well, why? The th- <laughs> Jesus is telling them the thing that they are most confident about, the thing that, that is most central to their own perception of their identity, what they perceive to be their greatest strength, it actually turns out, turns out to be their greatest weakness and their greatest vulnerability. So, so what is that reason? Let's look at Jesus' scriptural reason. And you'll see both of, both of these critiques, a misunderstanding of the scriptures and a misunderstanding of the very character of God, the power of God. So Jesus takes them to Exodus 3. The numbers in the, in the, just as a side note, the numbers that you have in your Bible, the verses and the chapter numbers, that comes way later. That's why Jesus says, you know, the passage about the bush. They know what they're, but for us, Exodus 3. It's, it's, of course, significant that Jesus takes them to Moses because, of course, they reference Moses. You know, Moses gives us this custom. But if you'll remember, 
um, they did not recognize the prophetic writings as authoritative. They only recognized the Torah. So Jesus says, okay, like we'll, play in your, we'll play in your field. We'll go to the Torah. Let's go find the resurrection in the Torah. Let's see if we can do it. So Jesus goes to the Torah. Now, just as a side note, that is not to say uh, that the resurrection is only in the Torah. Uh, actually, the, resurrec- the resurrection, though it is veiled, is throughout the Old Testament. It's concealed in the Old Testament, revealed in the New Testament. But you can see it. Uh, Daniel 12, you can uh, look at these passages maybe later this afternoon. Daniel 12, 2. Isaiah 29, 6. Psalm 49, 15. Psalm 71, 20. And then uh, we read earlier in the call to worship. Uh, remember this verse that I, uh, that I just read? Well, I didn't just read it. I read it at the, uh, the beginning of the service. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. What does that sound like to you? Sounds like resurrection to me. Right, so the resurrection is in other places in the Old Testament, but, but Jesus says, okay, we'll go to the Torah. Let's go, let's go to Moses. So Exodus 3, 6, uh, that's the passage that Jeremy read. Verse 6, it says, and he said... Uh, This is the verse that Jesus uh, specifically hones in on, verse 6. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. From this passage, coupled with the, the, the belief that God is not a God of the dead, but of the living, Jesus concludes necessarily that there must be a resurrection. Now, what's he arguing? Now, commentators have actually puzzled a little bit over what Jesus' actual argument is. Some people have argued that it's in the verb. He is the God. But here's the problem. There's no verb there. Uh, That verb to be is not present. It's not present in the Greek. It's not present in the Hebrew. It's a pronoun. So it can't rest on the present tense of the verb. Blah, 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 verbs. The point is, it's not about the fact that he says, I am the God of Isaac, or Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's, it's, it's actually something far deeper. What is it? Jesus is arguing on the basis of God's eternal covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now track with me. You with me? You got, can we do like thinking caps for a couple minutes here? Genesis 12. God makes a covenant with Abraham. Do you remember this covenant? He, he makes a covenant with Abraham. He's going to make him a great nation. And he's going to bless him. He's going to make him a blessing to every nation. In Genesis 13, he re-articulates that covenant saying, All the land that you see, I will give to you and your offspring forever. You hear it? He's good. This is a covenant that he's making with Abraham. And he's going to give the land to Abraham and to his offspring forever. God reaffirms this covenant with Abraham's son Isaac in Genesis 26, and then with Isaac's son Jacob in Genesis 28. In Genesis 17, we get a beautiful summary of this covenant. Listen to the summary. 17.6, God says, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. Do do you see what is being said here? God, are you tracking with me? You're with me? God enters into an everlasting covenant with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and all of his offspring. So it's as if Jesus is saying to the Sadducees, like, hey guys, do you remember in the Bible, remember back when Moses said that God made this everlasting covenant with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and then came to Moses on the basis of his faithful covenant-keeping relationship with them and told him that he would be with them? Jesus is saying, do you understand what that necessarily means, you guys? If it's an everlasting covenant, if God is a God of everlasting covenant relationship with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, guess what they can't be? They can't be dead. If God is going to be an everlasting, eternal covenant relationship with them, they have to be alive. 
And so, if God is going to keep his promise, there has to be a resurrection. There has to be a life after death. It can't be that you die, body and soul perish, game over. It has to be that there is life after death. It has to be that there is a resurrection. Why? Because God has made an everlasting covenant with his people. Now, do you see why Jesus says to him, you don't even know the scriptures. You have denied this most fundamental, elemental, core, foundational idea about who God is. That is, he is Yahweh, the covenant-keeping God, who makes his everlasting, eternal covenant with his people. But Jesus criticism is that they know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Now, Jesus, remember, okay, Jesus is really smart. Remember I said that? Jesus is really smart. There's other places, right? There's lots of places in the Torah where you can go to see the covenant-keeping nature of God, but he goes to the bush. He goes to the passage about the bush. You know what? You you know, we read about the bush. What about the, what's, what's with with the bush? I'll I'll read verse one and two again to you from Exodus three. Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. You see, there in that bush was an emblem of God's perfect, self-sufficient life. God was there in the bush, but the fact that the bush was burning but not consuming the bush, it was an emblem of the fact that God is this pure life, self-sustaining life, a life that is not dependent on anything for fuel. It's self-sufficient. It doesn't need the bush to burn. You know how it doesn't need the you know how you know it doesn't need the bush to burn? Because the bush is there fully intact. Nothing of the bush is being burned, and yet the fire still burns. It's a pure fire, a self-sufficient fire that burns in and of itself. It has its energy source in itself, and that's God. He is life. He is self-sufficient life. And so in this underhanded way, Jesus is saying to them, you don't know the power of God. God is the God of life, of self-sufficient life. And those who are connected to God, who are joined to God, all they can have is life. They can't just, it can't be that they die and they're gone. They're connected to God. And God is this overflowing, self-sufficient source of life. To be connected to God is to have life, period. Jesus, I am the way and the truth and the life. Not I came to, he came to tell them about life. He came to, to show them life, but he came to give them life because he himself is life. And Yahweh, Yahweh is life. So Jesus gives a, a logical defense, a scriptural defense, but I said that there is a, a third reason, a third defense, a third proof. And here is the, the final reason of Jesus that absolutely puts the argument to rest. A few days after Jesus has this conversation with the Sadducees, he's going to die. He's going to have this conversation with the Sadducees, some other events are going to unfold, which we're going to talk about, but he's going to wind up on a cross. And he's going to die. Really, truly, heart's going to stop beating. Lungs are going to stop pumping. Brain synapses are going to stop firing. Body is going to decay. He's going to die. But three days later, he rises from the dead. Three days later, the argument is over. Because there he is, resurrected. There he is. Once dead, now alive. Sadducees, you can't say there is no resurrection because he died, but now he's alive. <clears throat> so, this is where the argument ends, right? This is where the argument ends. What fact, what argument will you marshal against Jesus Christ? who goes to the cross, who dies, and who rises from the dead. And, and, and so everyone, listen, all of you here in the sound of my voice have to reckon with, listen, I'm telling you, you're going to die. 
It's going to happen. And yet at the same time, everyone that is here, everyone that is hearing my voice has to reckon with this historical fact, this reality that there was a man named Jesus who was the son of God who died and then rose again from the dead. That happened. It's not a fairy tale. It's not a story we tell ourselves to, to, to sleep more comfortable at night. It happened. And if he rose from the dead, that changes everything. Look, 1 Corinthians 15, 3, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. That's Paul. Do you remember the little thought experiment I had you do on Easter Sunday? Imagine you're in a courtroom and the question is, did Jesus rise from the dead? And 500 witnesses come through, one after the other. Yep, I saw him die and then I saw him alive again. And one after the other, 500 witnesses. Paul says, they're still alive, go ask them. 500 witnesses, one after the other. There isn't a judge in the world that wouldn't say, it happened. 500 people saw it. They all say the same thing. He died, and then he rose from the dead. Praise God. Do you know what the resurrection of Jesus tells us? It tells us that that this isn't a hoax. You you realize, of course, later on in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul is going to say, uh, if, if we have in this life hoped in Christ only, then we of all people are most to be pitied. If the, re- if, if the resurrection didn't happen, what you're doing here this morning is just wasting your time. This is silly. This is nonsense. This is only significant if he really did rise from the dead. And if he really did rise from the dead... then death doesn't have the final word. But God has the final word. Christ has the final word. Jesus really did travel through Galilee. He really did come into the world. He really did take on flesh. He really did travel around with 12 disciples preaching about the arrival of the kingdom. He really did give give sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He really did make the lame walk. He really did calm the seas. He really did multiply the fishes and loaves. If Jesus rose from the dead, everything he ever said said and did really happened. And and it's really true. And if he really did rise from the dead, then this is all real. And look, if he really did rise from the dead, then he really is the son of God. And he really, really did go to the cross so that you could be freed from the guilt of your sin so that you could have your sins paid for so that you could be set free from the bondage of death and decay he rose from the dead the the, the earthly bonds the earthly categories were blown apart And Christ really did emerge victorious over death. And why? And why? He did it in your place. He he came into the world. He took on flesh. He became a man. And look, he tasted death. He tasted death for you in your place. So that he could rise again and so that you could know his resurrection life. He did it to raise you from the dead spiritually and one day to raise you from the dead physically. John eleven twenty five, 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. You see, Jesus' life, death, and resurrection are the proof. They are the, they are the final end to the argument. The Sadducees come saying there's no resurrection. Jesus says, oh yeah? Watch this. 
and he dies and he rises again. Argument over. Conversation over. The resurrection is real. Life after death is real. Now, the last thing is, is what, what, what does that mean for us? What does, the, what does the resurrection mean? You've got a, a, a logical reason. A, a Jesus defends on, on the basis of a, a logical argument. He's, he's got scriptural reasons. He's got his, his own life and death and resurrection. What does that mean for us? Now listen, we could, we could just unpack for the rest of the day the implications of the resurrection. And uh, in a few minutes, when, I, you know, when we get to the point where we are sitting down to have lunch together, it might be worthwhile to just, whoever you're sitting with, try and work out some other implications of the resurrection. But let me just give you three. Okay? The resurrection, here's the first one. The resurrection gives you perspective. The resurrection gives you perspective. See, the reality of the res- resurrection tells you that, yes, you're going to die. But there is an eternity of life after death. In fact, the, the way that the scriptures talk about the resurrection, the life that comes after is in some sense more real than this life. You remember the, the you know, uh, C.S. Lewis and the, the phantom and the, the solid people? In some sense, the scriptures talk about the resurrection life as real life, as final life, as eternal life. And Jesus is the, the firstborn from the dead and the world as it is now is in labor pains. What we will be has not yet appeared, but we see the first fruits of it in Christ. And listen, when you know that this 80 years that you have to live is, is, is not all that there is, it gives you perspective, doesn't it? It gives you perspective to know that all the things that, that you think are so important right now and, and right here in, on this day and in this week and in this month and this year, it's just, it's, 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 it's the tiniest percentage of the billions of years that you will live in eternity in God's presence with his people forever. Can you imagine what your lives would look like if you lived in light of that eternal perspective? Can you imagine what your life would look like if you really embraced the fact that the first 80 years of your life are, are, are but a seed being planted for a tree to grow? Billions of years you have. We can't even fathom that. Billions of years ahead of you and billions of years of just joy and ecstasy and love in the, in the presence of God. It gives you perspective. The resurrection also gives you courage. Now look, the resurrection gives you courage in both life and death. How does the resurrection give you courage in life? Well, you know this life is not the end-all, be-all, right? You know that there is life after death. You know that there is a life to come. And you know that this life is merely a dress rehearsal for an eternity of joy and love in the presence of God. And because you know that, you don't hold on too tightly to this world. You take risks. You put yourself in dangerous situations. I'm not talking like evil can evil jump your motorcycle over a flame of fire. That's not the kind, maybe maybe you'll do that. That's not the kind of dangerous situation I'm talking about. I'm talking about I'm talking about will, being willing to risk your reputation, to risk your finances, to risk your relationships, to risk everything for the sake of Christ because you know what he has to offer is so much more eternally significant than whatever this world has to offer. So you don't hold on to the world tightly because you know what's coming. And so you have courage to take risks, to do things that the world will look on and say, that's ridiculous. That's foolish. Just up and sell your stuff and go move to some country you've never been away from your family. Go into your workplace. Speak boldly for Christ, knowing everyone's going to think you're an idiot. Why would you do that? This, this life, it's a breath. It's a vapor. Real life is coming, though. Courage. And it gives you courage in death, too. I know I've said this before, but Christianity is the only faith that actually really deals with death. It's the only faith that really deals with death. The world is constantly telling you to forget the fact that you're going to die, ignore it, numb yourself to it, pretend like you're going to live forever. Other religions tell you death is natural, right? It's a part of life. You got Disney telling you, you know, death is just it's the circle of life. You guys can all sing the song. But, every, but listen, everyone that has ever sat by someone's bedside and watched them die, 
Anyone that has ever known someone who lost a parent, lost a child, lost a mother, lost a father, brother, they know it's absolute nonsense. They know when they are honest that death is an intruder, that there's something inherently wrong about death. It's not natural. It's the most unnatural thing in the world when you, when you see someone die. Everything in your body screams out, this is not right. This is wrong. Everyone knows deep in their soul that death is an intruder, but you are going to have to face that cosmic evil someday. But the resurrection gives you courage. The resurrection gives you the ability to stand toe-to-toe with death and shout what we sang earlier. Death, where is your sting? Where is your victory? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives me the victory in Christ Jesus. In other words, you can say to death, bring it. Give me everything you got, death. I don't care. You can throw your best at me, death. The, the worst you can do to me is deliver me into the hands of my Savior. It's the worst you can do. The worst you've got to offer. I heard someone say that, that, that uh, death, the, in, in, in uh, Christianity, death has been reduced to a gardener. The idea, so what, what is sown uh, as perishable, as raised imperishable, death is now just the gardener planting the seed. And so, so the resurrection gives you courage to face your own death. And the last one, closing out, the resurrection gives you hope. It gives you a certain confidence that God's power is absolute. That God in Christ has the final word, not death. That's the biggest problem with the Sadducees' argument, is you die body and soul, and that's it? That's the final word? No, 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 no. Jesus Christ has the final word. Jesus Christ gets the final word. He was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. The resurrection says God is able to take that which is dead and make it alive. That means, by the way, that the powerful work God has started in you, it means he will bring it to completion necessarily. It also means those people in your life that you look at and you go, there's no way. There's no way that they're ever actually going to respond to Christ in faith. The resurrection says, yes, yes, they can. Because God is the God who takes the dead and makes them alive. It gives us hope. It means every promise God ever made has been guaranteed and secured by Christ. It means no matter what happens in Christ, you cannot lose. We're going to sing this in a minute. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. You see, because of the reality of the resurrection, you can face your own death with courage and with a certain hope. Praise be to God for the resurrection, for Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this time, and we thank you for the reality of the resurrection, for the hope that we get in the resurrection. Lord, I I pray that you would strengthen these brothers and sisters now as they uh, are reminded, as they have been reminded that you are a God who raises the dead, and Jesus Christ is the proof. That he is seated now at your right hand, glorified, ruling, and reigning the first fruits firstborn from the dead, and that all who have been joined to him in faith will follow in his footsteps and will likewise be resurrected, glorified bodies for all eternity. Lord, stoke our imaginations. Help us to anticipate with eager anticipation that day and help us to live in light of our great and glorious certain hope, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.